0: Look it up. Listen, I'm watching
1: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
0: Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah, Na Pesaram, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith, and this week I'm flying solo. And I'm joined from Portland, Oregon by our correspondent from. Biden's America, Jason Wilson. How are you, Jason?
1: I am hot, is how I am. It's currently, let me see, we're having a heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, and it was a record temperature yesterday. The highest temperature ever recorded in Portland was yesterday, and the record it beat was the day before. So I don't know if we beat it again today. So it was 115 degrees, 46 degrees Celsius, which (laughs) is not what we had would hitherto have thought about as normal in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we had the, those forest fires last year, and I guess we're probably, I mean, there's already forest fires in the West at the moment. It's its literally hotter than it's ever been. So that is a big picture concern, but it's also a more uh, immediate concern <laughs> because, yeah, the, the place isn't really built for it. The place where I'm living right now, I'm lucky enough to have air conditioning, it's something like 40 or 50 percent of the people in Seattle don't have air conditioning uh, or 40 percent of dwellings anyway or whatever you know so yeah that's that's what's happening here and the thing is that nothing obviously was done throughout the Trump years to address any of that. Biden's been talking about things but nothing's materialized yet and it's not clear what he'll be able to get through Congress after 2022. I guess we'll have to wait and see.
0: I guess the good news is it's only going to get hotter.
1: Yeah that's that's right.
0: So you have uh, you have written a little bit about some climate related stuff recently. You had a story in the Guardian earlier this month or uh, last month, as this goes to air, about a water rebellion in the US's West. Could you tell us a little bit about what that's all about?
1: Right. So I mean these these high temperatures are you know coming on top of a historic drought, ongoing drought in the West, the West Coast states, I guess particularly California and Oregon are uh, you know some places again have set records in terms of uh, how long it is since they've had rainfall how low the water table is etc 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 so there is a water management a dam basically uh, on the Klamath River and the Klamath River kind of starts in Oregon but kind of works its way down into Northern California and there's a, a water management a dam at, at Klamath Falls And they call it the Klamath Basin Project or whatever. So basically, the way in which court decisions have worked out, you know, about the control of that water means that the people sort of upstream get first dibs. That includes some farmers, but it also includes some tribes there. And there are particular fish species which are sacred to the the, the Klamath tribe. And so they get a pretty big say over how the water gets distributed when the water's low. And so they've kept you know, the, the the federal government agency charged with distributing water has kept that water in the basin, you know, in consultation with the tribe, which means that folks, both tribes and farmers who are downstream are not getting any more water this year, which is, you know, pretty pretty serious for a lot of them. It's also serious for the salmon who like to spawn in that river by swimming upstream. And if there's, there's not a lot of water in the river, it means that they can't swim. And they're Really important to you know a number of tribes downstream, so it's it's quite a complicated situation. But uh, there is no complicated situation which <laughs> which the patriot movement cannot make stupid and uh, simple. So basically, what happened was twenty years ago, back in two thousand one, there was a similar situation where they didn't distribute water to farmers downstream. And you know, one day in in two thousand one, a, a bunch of farmers showed up. About a hundred of them, and they kind of shoved these irrigation pipes in the dam, and it was mostly symbolic. But they they got they basically routed the water around the dam, uh, around the gates of, of the dam, and and got it flowing downstream. And it was a kind of you know a kind of Bundy esque uh, sagebrush rebellion type of uh, situation. Um,
0: Very DIY.
1: Yeah, and it kind of dragged on. It was actually in two thousand. It dragged on through two thousand and one, but it was one of those things where. The conversation was kind of ended by 9-11 and appeals to the patriotism of the farmers and what have you. And, and also a kind of, uh, you know, a fairly paranoid kind of attitude to security and infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. And maybe the farmers got a talking to from some agencies. But yeah, I mean, they did sort of have protests and camp out and and, and had a kind of a, a standoff of sorts, I suppose, a, a kind of ongoing standoff with, with the federal government. And that situation kind of is another one of those things that maybe uh, nine eleven assisted people to forget all of the the stuff that the radical right in the United States got up to throughout the nineties, and and that was I guess the the tail end of that. But anyway, a couple of the guys who were involved with that initial action are now kind of camped out by the gates, threatening to do the same thing. They keep saying Ammon Bundy is going to come and 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 help them. Ammon hasn't shown up. They haven't really done anything. They've announced this this federal crime in advance so I mean if they actually did anything they'd they'd probably be uh, in in the frame for kind of conspiracy charges on on top of whatever they did so I don't think anything's probably going to happen there you never know but I I don't think so I think it's a couple of guys who are trying to get the band back together but it's it's indicative of a kind of a simmering conflict that has never gone away. The, the same conflict, I suppose, was at the basis of both the, the Bundy Ranch standoff and then the Malia National Wildlife Refuge Occupation. There's a kind of basic conflict there between local, often pastoral interests, but some agricultural in this case and climate, who, and, and pastoralists in particular, like the Bundys, have, had, have long had more or less unlimited, not quite free, but incredibly cheap access to grazing land that's actually owned by the federal government throughout the latter quarter of the 20th century and into the 21st century other interests began to assert themselves in the management of public land native americans environmentalists and so a lot of the conflict i mean part of the the, the conflict underlying the bundy ranch was that they were trying to shut off some of the grazing land because there was an endangered tortoise on that land and you know you've got endangered fish in this situation and and you know like until probably the middle of the 20th century, no one challenged the prerogatives of white settlers in, in in the rural West. I mean, they just had the run of the place and they they came to expect that. And now, you know, other interests have to be taken into account and that sets up a kind of conflict. It sets up, uh, uh, it, it leads to conspiracy theories, you know, relating to why the federal government wants to kind of control the land and manage it in different ways. So... You know, I mean, if you if you go out into the into r- the rural Western United States, you, you're gonna pretty quickly find people who are who are pretty heavily into the Agenda 21 kind of conspiracy theory. I'd say that 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 is pretty widely accepted among a lot of rural conservatives. The idea that the federal government wants to depopulate rural areas and move people into the cities and and you know maybe into camps for the more hardcore people. So it's led to those kinds of conspiracy theories, or, or it's it's been bound up with that. And, and, you know, you can go back to the posse comitatus or the sagebrush rebellion in the 70s. I mean, this stuff has been simmering away since the moment the federal government said your interests are not the only interests at stake here. There's there's other stuff that we need to consider.
0: Do you think this sort of stuff might translate to Australia, where I guess we have some of the same elements at play? You've got, you know, the National Party, where you have MPs who are increasingly dabbling in Agenda 21-style rhetoric. You know, water and land rights, uh, I think, have a sort of similar history here would translate, or is it, you know, Is throwing guns into the mix maybe where you get things to get interesting?
1: Guns, yeah, definitely guns make things different in the United States, you know. I mean, absolutely no doubt. So it's always going to be different in Australia to that extent. However, I mean, I have to say, well, when I I covered the Malia National Wildlife Refuge Occupation for The Guardian, you know, the first bit of it anyway, uh, the first... Couple of weeks and the rhetoric and the the sort of appeals to a, a sense that pastoralists are the real Americans, a complete disregard for indigenous sovereignty. I mean, I'd be lying if I said <laughs> that uh, this was all totally shocking to me. I mean, it really reminded me of Queensland, of rural Queensland. So uh, yeah, there are definitely similarities, I think. And uh, look. There is a legitimate problem in rural areas of the West, which is that, I mean, particularly in the, the, the West Coast blue states, uh, in Oregon, in Washington, in California. And the problem is that, you know, these folks vote for Republicans, but there aren't enough of them to ever get a legislative majority or even get governors at this point. And so Republicans are sort of more or less permanently locked out of power in those. States and so you you kind of you would think that that would make them moderate and try to appeal to people in the suburbs, but certainly in Oregon and and to an extent in California, I, it's it's actually meant that getting to a legislative majority just sort of disappears from the things that they're interested in doing, and really they they if anything they've radicalized and now I mean I, I probably said this on your program before, but I, it's it's kind of really hard to draw a line between. The Oregon Republican Party and, and the Patriot movement. I mean they 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 kind of blend into each other. It, it, you know to some extent they're the same people, uh, and and that's because I think that they don't. You know one of the things that can moderate people is just sort of the responsibility of governing and having to balance various interests and just having to get a certain amount of stuff done. Uh, you know uh, if you're governing a state, and if they don't have to do that, and and so the job of politicians becomes to win primaries and then they and the constituents especially during the Trump era have been in this kind of this dance with one another where they've drifted further and further right and you can't you can't win a primary by running to the left of someone anymore really there are a few places where that happens in southwest washington but you know in republican politics but not not much and, and so if anything the momentum is driving people further and further out to the the, the kind of radical fringe so so yeah i mean is that happening in Australia? Australia is built slightly differently, I think. I mean, I don't know what you think, but someone like Scott Morrison I don't, doesn't strike me as a a, a sort of hard right wing ideologue. I mean, I'm not saying he's a top bloke or anything, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that, like, I, I think there are there are other factors in Australia that, at least on some issues, kind of tend to drag people a little bit. Towards the centre, although I think the centre's been moving right in Australia as well. But but yeah, the, the National Party is a different story, and always has been. And you know, the Queensland National Party is is particularly a different story. And and I think that they they probably see themselves as kind of competing with you know outfits like One Nation a lot of the time. And so there's probably a bit more room for them to uh, you know. But but yeah, sorry. I don't want to. I don't want to whitewash the LNP nationally, like I think they are moving to the right, but it, I, I also think that there's not the same kind of acceleration towards towards kind of QAnon people running for running for office or whatever that that, that we see here, you know, in the major right-wing party. I, I, I don't get the impression that, that that's quite the same, but, you know, there, there are similarities in the context, for sure, as we said at the beginning, you know, between rural Australia and, and, and the rural West of the United States in particular.
0: Speaking of Republicans lurching rightwards, you also wrote a piece about uh, the political civil war taking place within the Idaho Republican Party. Can you give us the cliff notes on this one?
1: Uh, Well, you've got a different situation in Idaho where Idaho is kind of the opposite of what I said about Oregon, Washington, California. You know, Idaho is right next to Oregon and Washington, you know, immediately to the east, inland, landlocked, you know, it's not on the coast. But Idaho probably has a decent claim on being the reddest state in the country in some ways. I mean, some of those states in the south are very, very, you know, red. In, in in other words, you know, they just it's Republicans top to bottom. But but Idaho's like that too. But you know, there's 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 a slightly different history there to in the south. But anyway, I mean, to cut to the chase, the Democrats are never going to form a legislative majority there, or not for a very long time. We've seen red states. Like Georgia and Arizona, you know, getting getting more and more blue as their cities grow, as their metros grow, as the suburbs grow in particular, and more educated people move there. the The, the big political divide in this country is is education. Basically, white people with college degrees tend to vote Democrat, along with uh, uh, you know the sort of multiracial, I guess, coalition that the Democrats have. And white people without college degrees vote Republican, and and that's basically you know, as true as any statistical kind of artefact is going to be. So, but in Idaho, that, that's not going to happen for a long time. There's no real moderating influences. The Republicans are in charge of everything. But what happened throughout the COVID situation was that the, the fringier elements of the party, the people furthest out on the right, got a lot of juice, so to speak, from being the kind of tribunes of the anti-mask, anti-lockdown protest movement. And... They use that as a stick to beat their main enemies with, and their main enemies are not the Democratic Party, but the, the more established, slightly more moderate Republicans, um, including the governor. Uh, so, the governor is Brad Little. I mean, and he's no one's commie. Uh, you know, he's not a pinko. He's not. <laughs> he's he's done a whole lot of really quite amazing stuff. Uh, and under him, you know, their gun laws have relaxed, and uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. He's not any kind of lefty but you know he did they never had a statewide mask mandate but he did sort of participate in some lockdowns he allowed local governments including the few kind of democratic cities that are sprinkled around idaho to sort of create their own mask mandates and so he was seen as you know insufficiently freedom loving by a lot of grassroots republicans the kind of people who vote in primaries because you know conservative media was driving people crazy over this stuff and and telling them that mask mandates were like the work of the devil or, you know, a prelude again to FEMA camps or whatever, you know, you, you, you've you seen all of this stuff too. And so the farther right people, including his lieutenant governor, Janice McGeachin, were able to, by standing up, or as they would think of it, standing up to him, standing up to public health authorities, were able to... Wedge, I guess, wedge the, the, the Republican base, probably take the biggest part of it for themselves and, and really get a lot of momentum and a lot of support and, and, and dragging a lot of people on, into their onto their side that they might not have done, that would not, I would say, have done so in, in, in kind of normal times. And so, yeah, now Janice McGeechan is running for governor. Little is able to run again. He hasn't announced his intentions. It's looking like it's going to be a crowded field. But look, McGeechan has connections to the three percenters. She's absolutely an anti-vax, anti-mask kind of person, has has a very radical uh, conception of the Second Amendment, has a lot of theocratic kind of ideas. And that's sort of what the far right, well, the Republican right is like in Idaho. They're, they're, I guess, dominionist evangelicals, a, a lot of them. Idaho, of course, has a... A long history of also having neo Nazis, you know, they had Aryan Nations up in Hayden Lake back there in the '80s and '90s. You know, there's there's all kinds of far right elements that have come through there. But uh, that's what the Republican right looks like there, and that's that's her up down to a T. And so, anyway, if she wins the primary, I mean, people just vote the R. You know, they just they vote according to party ID in general elections. So, whoever wins the primary is going to be the next governor. Th- that seems. Inevitable at this point, and so you know, everyone I talked to for that story said, "Well, I, I, I could say that she has doesn't have a chance, but I would have said that about her becoming lieutenant governor, which is a separate election, you know, a separate statewide election to the governor, and she won that in a kind of crowded field where the moderate vote was split. I mean, a, a little like what Trump did, really. So, yeah, I mean, and I had a story, of course, about uh, a, a guy called Eric Parker who was at the Bundy." Ranch standoff in 2014 and famously was photographed uh, pointing his uh, uh, kind of sniper rifle at a BLM agent, you know, he's the founder of a group called Idaho, what is it? Idaho Real 3%, you know, kind of 3% splinter group. And I got off of his, off of his telegram uh, channel, I got video of him endorsing McGeechan. And it seems to have happened before, before she officially announced that she was running for governor. And and it may have been a fundraising event. I mean, I'm still sort of trying to figure that out. And if it was a fundraising event, it doesn't seem like any funds connected with that event have been declared. So we'll see if I can find out anything more about all of that. But yeah, I mean, the main part of the story was that he was, he was basically saying to the gathered people, you know, she's, she's our woman, basically. She's the one who's going to help us out. She's going to be our person in the governor's mansion. She's she's on our side. And that's both amazing <laughs> and and indicative of how far how much things have changed in the Republican Party, even within the last four or five years. I mean, before Trump, I think that would have been that the, the stuff she's done and the association she's had, you know, she would have been sort of like sunk, I think, by those associations. Because I'm not the first person to report on her Having these kind of associations. And before Trump, I think that that would have all sort of sunk her. Her career would now be kind of in tatters. But um, yeah, she's fine and she might even be governor.
0: In terms of the impact of COVID, how much, you know, obviously, the mask, the few mask mandates that they had would have had some sort of positive effect. How much does that get taken into account when you're having these races? Or is it just the fact that the people voting? in these primaries are sort of living in an alternative dimension in terms of the information they consume that it just has no impact.
1: Totally. I mean, here's the thing, and and you're seeing this in Australia as well. I think that uh, it's, it's, it's unpredictable. It's messy. Some of the early stuff we were told was wrong or, or changed. And there are all kinds of ways to slice and dice, you know, health statistics. While it seems like it seems to be like, broadly absolutely true that wearing masks in especially in interior spaces in public prevents transmission of the disease you know but like it's not always clear in any given I don't know city or state or time period that, that, that that's that, it's not always overwhelmingly clear that that's the case there's always a kind of a counter-narrative that can, people can drum up especially if they're mainly seeing this as a political opportunity <laughs> and they don't really have any, <laughs> they're not that conscientious about the kind of public health issues or if they're so deluded themselves that they kind of, and, and so, you know, the conversation that's happened in, in the United States is really the same one that Americans always have. It's, it's about, uh, the, the, about individual freedom in relation to state power and, and where the line should be ideally in, 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 in the circumstances of a pandemic, we would kind of make some concessions to the state and say like, or at least the public health authorities, not necessarily governments, but, you know, we would kind of voluntarily perhaps wear masks and, and we'd understand why a lot of businesses have been shut down because, you know, we want to live in cities maybe. And, and, and cities seem to be pretty good places for this stuff to spread. And anyway, like, Wherever you come down on that, the point is that the best way for folks like McGeechan to win the argument is to just, you know, cancel out the actual underlying realities of how this pathogen is spread and and the dynamics of, of of this epidemic, and and to just really reduce it to this paranoid kind of account, I guess, of state power encroaching on individual liberty, and and you know maybe throw in some sort of apocalyptic future prospects in there, you know? So, like, I think the answer to your question is that the realities of the pandemic just don't come into the discussion for a lot of people. They're just not part of the discussion. They're just like, this is all fake. This is all bullshit. This is all deep state lies or whatever. And it's just that the state wants to curtail your liberties and maybe they're planning something else. Maybe they're planning to put us in camps. Maybe they're um, planning to just flick the pandemic switch on and off um, every now and again, to sort of pacify dissidents. So yeah, I mean that in those discussions amongst those folks, you know, the fact that I don't know whatever Coeur Lane, Idaho, or Sandpoint, Idaho, has had better statistics since they introduced the mask mandate. Like that's just not <laughs> that's just not really going to enter into the discussion. It's it's purely an issue about for them. It's purely an issue about about the relationship of of you know state power and 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 liberty and and particularly religious liberty you know is 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 one of the things that has been really prominent all along so you know when churches were briefly forcibly i guess shut down under pain of you know fines or prosecutions or whatever that was that was a particular affront i guess to these folks and yeah and that's 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 how we ended up where we are.
0: Well, grim as per usual, Jason, I guess just in closing, is there anything positive on the horizon that uh, you see? Oh, well, I mean, so so I wrote another piece, for, an
1: op-ed for The Guardian Australia uh, this week, where I was sort of, I suppose, complaining. That's that's the, the heart of every good op-ed, isn't it? I was just complaining a bit about the way Australia, Australia the Australian governments, federal and state, have sort of dealt with, you know, Australian citizens who are leading, living overseas. People can read up on that if they want to hear me complaining. But the, the positive stuff I had to say in there was about the way in which the, the US has, you know, the the vaccination rollout and, and the, the sort of COVID response has sort of changed since, I guess since Trump <laughs> left and since there was a different president who's, I guess, just a bit more normal, whatever you think of him. He's a bit more normal than Trump and probably, I guess, takes government a little more seriously. I don't know, but uh, I'm not saying I agree with the guy about everything, but there just seems to be a level of competence uh, in operation. And since January, I mean, well over half of US adults are vaccinated now. Uh, I think it's 45% of the population all told you know things are starting to wake up things are starting to come back to life people are out in the street i don't have to wear a mask in every single shop i go into anymore like as opposed to the last almost 2 years yeah i things are st- here at least things are starting to get to look a little more like they did in 2019 there's a sort of definitely there's a light at the end of the tunnel it feels like we're going to kind of emerge from this and hopefully despite what we were saying earlier about the kind of evidence-free discussions that are happening on the right about these issues, I think the country as a whole understands that, that you know, the, the the Trump administration handled this very, very badly. The Biden administration is at least admitting that there is a disease that is responsive to vaccinations and, and that we should get them out to as many people as we possibly can. And, and that has led to, yeah, the country just looking a little more um, like it might recover, so that's good. I don't know what that will mean electorally in twenty twenty two. I don't know what that will mean for the Trump movement, which is busily taking over the Republican Party at the moment. I mean, things things are just here. I, I know that the, there are struggles in Australia at the moment, but but I, I guess maybe that's that's the thing I could say. Like, despite all of the unnecessary death and the horrible disruptions and and the way in which it drove. That kind of wedge a little further into the into the country and really really divided people more than more than they ever had been before. Despite all of that, it's kind of like there's the end is almost sort of inside here and and I think that will probably once Australia has enough vaccines and all that kind of stuff, it'll it'll probably happen there too. And and that feels good. You know, I might actually go get to see. A show or two later in the summer, I might I might get to walk into a restaurant without a mask on in the fall sometime. You know, by winter I might be uh, you know going to a, a co-working space or going to going to a bar or whatever without 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 worrying about coronavirus, and that, so that's good,
0: something for us to look forward to when we're vaccinated in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty
1: three. Yeah, but that's the other thing though, right? Like, so at the beginning of the year, like when Biden took over and whatever it was, the twentieth of January. You know, I was told I wouldn't be getting vaccinated until about now because of my place on the priorities list. And then it changed to May and then it changed to, and and, uh, you know, 1st of May. It was 1st of May for a really long time. That's what I was hanging out for. And in the event, I ended up getting fully vaccinated by, I guess, the middle of April. So things can change, you know. Like if when a government like the US has just sort of throws all of its resources at vaccinating as many people as possible and 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 that's kind of like their number one priority so they've been vaccinating people in car parks in, in open fields in every pharmacy you know you can find in in healthcare clinics they've just been going all out and it's kind of like at this point I think that everyone in the U.S. who wants to be vaccinated will be fully vaccinated pretty soon so that's good I mean like they just need to do it and prioritize it. And and in Australia, there have been I don't know. I'm not reporting on healthcare in Australia. There will be other people who can tell you the ins and outs of what went wrong with the pr- procurement process and stuff like that. It's clearly something's gone wrong. But you know something went badly wrong, very badly wrong in the US in 2020. And and I mean goodness, all those folks who died are not coming back. But it changed dramatically, and things can change dramatically if good decisions are made, even if bad ones have been made in the past. So we'll see. You know. I hope dies last right like there's reason to hope i think for, in australia at the moment and australia just hasn't ever it's it's probably not ever going to get as bad as the u.s was in 2020 so yeah
0: all right well thanks that there was a slightly tempered positive ending but yeah, it's okay yeah, cheerier it, than usual yeah i mean Things can
1: always get worse, but they can also get better. I, that's, that's positive, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Things can always get worse. Very positive. Well, <laughs> Jason, that's all we've got time for on the radio. We'll have a few more questions on the podcast, uh, which you can find at 3cr.org.au. People can find you on Twitter, of course, at Jason underscore A underscore W. Thanks for joining us. No worries at all. Always happy to chat. All right. Global Indifada is up next. Catch you next week. So, Jason, you know, on Yair just like Pure Tone, we are totally addicted to bass. <laughs> and you did have another story about the bass that came out uh, last month in the through the Southern Poverty Law Centre. What was that all about?
1: So that was about a guy called
0: Jared Elder. Jared
1: was in the US Army. In fact, he was deployed in the initial invasion of Iraq in 2013 uh, and did a number of tours there. Came back to the United States and served for a good while as a, a California National Guardsman. So, uh, uh, Australian listeners may not know that uh, the National Guard is an institution. Is, is kind of odd because it's part of the armed forces. So ultimately, I guess it's under the, the the command of the president of the United States. So it's a, it's kind of like the line of command runs up through the federal government, but it's it's actually a state level institution and 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 governors. Get to deploy it as well, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, he came back and he he served with the California National Guard for a long time, apparently, as a military policeman. But towards the end of that service, he heard the appeal that Ronaldo Nazaro, a.k.a. Norman Spear, a.k.a. Roman Wolf, put out on social media and, and found himself attracted to it and joined the base's chats towards the end of 2018. Stayed in there for a number of months until he was actually identified as a result of a leak. He was identified by an anti-fascist group here in the U S Eugene Antifa. And then he left the, left the chats for a good while, but then this is one of the the, the the kind of things that was, that was difficult about the story. We reported that uh, a user I, who, who uh, under a different username, but who was identified by himself and by others in the chat as as Jared Elder, or as the owner of the previous username that he'd operated under, came back to the chats. Now, I I couldn't sort of report that out in a way that that I was able to 100% confirm that it was him, but if you want my opinion, it was him. He came back to the chats after he'd been identified, after his life had sort of been significantly affected, after he'd already received some discipline from the California National Guard according to him, because I, I got him on the phone at one point and we had a chat. So it was about this guy who was, you know, serving in the US military, who had a kind of distinguished record of service, who was radicalised in various ways by by his military service, by his participation in the kind of prepper subculture, and eventually came over to white nationalism and was quite an important member of the base as a, as a sort of social network in its early phases. And, and I guess the story was about the problem that the US military has, which is that a number of people in the US military are, are, are attracted to these kind of movements, accelerationist movements, other kinds of extremist movements, neo-Nazi groups, whatever. So the story was about that. But I think the question I had as I wrote the story, and it, it sort of comes out a little in the conclusion to the story is, well, it's a question for discussion, perhaps. Maybe you have a view on it. I mean, like, what if if a country or a hemisphere, for that matter, an alliance goes to war on the basis of a kind of idea of a clash of civilizations, a fundamental incompatibility of values between the West and I don't know, whatever, Islam or um, the, the Muslim world, and, and someone at, at, a, at a quite tender age goes and invades another country on that basis, you know, being given that rationale, how does that relate to, you know, that person passing through a number of points on the way to white nationalism, like where, where the idea is, is is a sort of racial conflict as opposed to a, a civilizational conflict. But maybe the civilizational conflict type of idea is actually just a a veneer on a, a, a sort of raci- an idea of racial conflict, the kinds of ideas that have propelled imperialism throughout the 19th century, you know, probably before. I don't know. I mean, that that was what was interesting to me. Like, this guy goes to serve his country, you know, in the interests of this idea that the West is under attack by the Islamic world, and he winds up in a group where the idea is the white race is under attack by other races, including Arabs, African folks, people in South Asia who who may or may not be mu- Muslim, you know, like like what is the relationship? What's the traje- trajectory there? I don't know if I sketched out that trajectory completely, but I don't know. I feel like there's not. I feel like there's a relationship between all of those
0: ideas. What do you think? Well, I think I might have said it the last time you were on, is that you have these conflicts that really are somewhat racialized. And I think that like no amount of stormfront propaganda or anything is could possibly have as much of a radicalizing effect as being yelled at 24 hours a day that you need to kill brown people. The fact is we have a lot of people returning from conflicts where they are killing brown people and they don't then say, I need to continue doing this. So maybe the US military in its efforts to root out extremists in the ranks need to be looking at what are we doing wrong with these people that we can replicate with all of these other people.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. And, and certainly I'm not trying to tar every person who happened to find themselves in that position with the same brush. I'm certainly not saying that that all veterans turn out this way. I mean, some veterans obviously go in the opposite direction and become important sort of critical voices who are, you know, opposed to to US imperialism uh, and, you know, ill-advised invasions of other countries. But I guess... What I'm wondering is yeah I I don't know I mean it seems like what's happening at the moment is in a, in the United States because this is a kind of important debate at the moment like how many of uh, you know in, in the US military or in police forces you know suddenly it's come to the attention of important people that you know there might be some white supremacists who are interested in that kind of work right and, and in their mind it seems to be possible to have a police force or you know, a gigantic military apparatus that is somehow populated with a whole bunch of good liberals or whatever, you know, people who are tolerant and egalitarian racially and in other ways and who are just simply looking for a professional career. And, like, no doubt lots of people get into it for that reason. Those people exist. But, like, if you're invading other countries in wars of aggression, not only are you going to attract people to whom that idea is appealing, but you're going to traumatize people. You're going to put people in situations where they're killing other human beings or being wounded, hurt by other human beings in a context where, yeah, it's been presented as a clash of civilizations, a clash between the West, aka white people, and and uh, the Islamic world, aka brown people, and it's just that's just the way it was presented. And so, like. Can you expect? Can you expect to put a whole bunch of people through that and not produce a number of people who who kind of run with those ideas in the direction of race war? I, I don't think you can. So, like, maybe maybe it's not realistic for U.S. legislators or the U.S. military to think that they can kind of do the the sorts of things they've done and and not produce these people. Maybe it's not actually. Adequate or even productive for them to individualise this problem and and say it's it's bad apples and bad eggs. Uh, no doubt, uh, Jared Elder is a bad apple and a bad egg. But yeah, uh, what what made him bad, or uh, if he was already bad, why was he attracted to joining the military at such a time where he was likely to be deployed to Iraq? So I think I you know I hope there is a kind of institutional reckoning at some point with this stuff and that it doesn't just become a, a rebadged war on terror where individuals are surveilled and entrapped and subject to secret courts or whatever and 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 that's the way it's approached. I mean I I think that there has to be an institutional reckoning where the military, the US military, uh, US government, even the US media, goodness have to kind of reckon with the way in which conflicts have been framed and even called into being uh, on the basis of, yeah, a, a sort of civilizational clash that's that's really, really close to the way in which white nationalists think about the world, if you just change a few words.
0: Yeah, I don't really have any good solutions that aren't quite hippy-diffy. Like, what if we stopped throwing young men into the meat grinder in the name of capital and empire like that could help with this problem
1: it could it could it really could
0: <laughs> and then my my follow-up is if we have to what if we just you know imbued them with some class consciousness so they come out of it realizing uh, what it was in aid of and then i don't think that the u.s military is going to do that
1: <laughs> no i don't i don't think so either i mean i think there is a genuine i mean the the only kind of ray of hope is that one of the only sort of vaguely bipartisan beliefs is that the the, the war in Iraq was a, was a horrible failure. So there are a few kind of neocon-aligned folks still around. But really, I mean, no one wants to own the Iraq war. That's what it comes down to because it was such a disaster. And so, like, I think that there is a diminished appetite for I- imperialist war and and, you know, there's a difficulty in – recruiting people to to, to the institutions that would have to carry that out. And the draft is still technically a thing, but is not enforced, and I don't imagine it will be. So it's kind of like there are constraints on all of that now, but I don't think there will be real improvements until it's at least recognised that, yeah, putting young men through the the meat grinder, as you say, from 2003 onwards, you know, has led to blowback (laughs) domestically in all kinds of ways. But including the fact that a lot of guys come back from that failed war and and sort of go in a particular direction, which leads to which leads to joining white supremacist movement, white power movements, you neo-Nazi know, movements. Uh, they, they, all of this stuff needs to be put in context. Unfortunately, at the moment, what I'm seeing is, I guess what what I would say would be kind of patriotic liberal talking points dominating the conversation. That if we can just Flush these white supremacists out of the military. We will have a, a kind of cleansed republic and a, a, a rational empire, or something. I don't know, and I don't think I don't really think things work that way. I think the U.S. probably just has. I think the U.S. probably just has to avoid getting itself into those sort of situations again. It's not. It's still not clear why the invasion of Iraq was necessary. It wasn't clear at the time. It's. It's even less clear now, and and doesn't seem to have helped enormously. I mean, okay, Saddam is not there anymore and Saddam was a a genocidal authoritarian and the current Iraqi regime is a lot of things, but it's probably not quite the same kind of genocidal authoritarian regime as Saddam's was. But, I mean, the trade-offs there are just nightmarish. So I I don't think that, yeah, and I I think that's widely recognised so I think we have, a. I hope we have a little bit of breathing space before the next imperialist adventure on that scale anyway and hopefully like somewhere in this discussion will be a recognition that those events, those mistakes are in the mix with domestic terrorism that's motivated by white supremacy uh, because it's and and that's I hope what the story got across.
0: Well, Jason, I've just got one last story I wanted to ask you about before we let you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you published a little while ago, but since we last spoke to you, threats by menacing clowns led DC police to surveil <laughs> online accounts.
1: Right. So you remember the clowns? I mean, I mean, hopefully your listeners as well will remember this kind of scare, this social media kind of meme almost, of of scary clowns back in 2016.
0: Yeah, how can I forget?
1: And so, yeah, people were on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, you know, like dressing up as clowns and making these kind of vague threats. At the time, I was laughing about it and just interpreting it as people, this kind of elaborate joke that people were involving themselves in where, you know, it was just like there were scary clowns everywhere. It was in the lead up to Halloween and it was just one of those things that caught on. But ransomware attackers went after the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the, the police department for Washington, D.C. They didn't pay up. So the ransomware attackers released all their stuff. And then via a distributed denial of secrets, the Transparency Organization, I and other reporters were able to have a look at that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I found out that there had been
0: a an actual investigation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only an investigation, but cops going to, like, middle schools and interrogating kids and, you know, cops writing up calls they'd gotten from kids about being chased by clowns. And they would go around to this kid's house and interview the kid and the kid, the kid's story wouldn't hold up under a police interrogation. And it turned out it had just been a story they'd made up to, uh, for whatever reason, kids do things. So, yeah, it was pretty funny. Like, there were significant intelligence resources you know, a lot of, you know, officer hours logged in responding to this clown scare. Uh, and, and, look, some of it obviously was as a result of pressure that they were getting from, like, parents and, you know, school administrators, I guess. But but it, I, it was only a short story that I had the opportunity to do. It wasn't that long. But it, I think people who look at it will... will who actually look at the documents will see how a moral panic kind of works at the granular level. It's like, you know, the the, the cops always have an agenda to to augment their powers and 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 because it makes their job easier. They want they want more powers. They want more prerogatives, right? But they also feel they also go after this stuff because they feel like they're under pressure from business owners, from school administrators, from from citizens, right, who are complaining about these things. So you know if enough people complain about killer clowns on instagram they have to kind of look into it and then that kind of feeds back into media reporting and then that feeds back into public concern and and you get this kind of spiral i don't think the spiral went all the way up with the killer clowns like i think enough people saw that this was just a, a joke or a meme to, to to not go too far but i mean they scared a bunch of kids who were either bringing clown suits to work or who were DMing their friends with scary clown stuff or who were claiming that they'd been chased. Like, they talked to a bunch of middle school and junior high students who had basically been involved in pranks and, you know, it became a police matter.
0: Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Um, Did they go go to any circuses?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not as far as I know. Uh, But they, they, I mean, the language they used to talk about it is so... It's so funny because they're taking it so seriously and they're taking these kind of vague threats so seriously when the threats are clearly just trying to scare people online for clicks and I don't know. I don't know if a little bit more digital media literacy would have led them to not take that quite so seriously. I'm not sure. Maybe they've just got to take it seriously at a certain point, but it looked completely ridiculous in retrospect.
0: Oh, I guess the the good thing is that it's an isolated incident and people getting scared (laughs) online for clicks will never be a societal issue in any sort of broader sense.
1: Uh, Nor will will police overreach, I'm pretty sure.
0: Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, That's all we've got time for. Great to chat as always, Cam. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ+, can experience suicidal thoughts. LivingWorks deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, LivingWorks is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR
1: supporter.